real news. Welcome, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. Today is September 24th, uh, 2019. It's um, Tuesday, and um, it is a very interesting day. We had a lot of things going on, a lot of press conferences going on, a UN meeting, religious freedom, you know, um, mentally, or what would we, we say, a psychologically hindered children now being paraded on the grand stage to push these, this climate change hoax, another ecopolypse, right? Apocalypse of ecology, uh, that they're pushing. Uh, there's a lot to talk about today. Uh, I want to talk about Brexit. I want to analyze what the president said and the Easter eggs he dropped during his UN speech because a lot of us seem to think that when he flirts with the idea of red flag laws, when he flirts with the idea of this or that, that that's the way he's going. This is how you buy, okay? You go fishing. The only way to catch a fish and to see if the fish is a shark, a guppy, a tuna, you got to cast the bait. And this is a Exactly how President Trump operates. I mean, we've seen this constantly since he's been sworn in. How much was de- being done in the background and how um, this has progressed. Now, I, I, I think I need to just start with the climate change hoax so we can get over that. Like, I have watched this child speak. I feel so sorry for her. They're claiming she has Asperger's or is on the spectrum. You know, she's autistic on the spectrum. Uh, personally, if I was to profile that child and I was asked to create a profile from what I see, which I've done throughout my whole life, I can tell you that that would be a person that would be classified as, um, you know, someone that you would flag. Because there are neuropsychotic tendencies uh, from the way she morphs her face, regardless if she has Asperger's or if, uh, you know, she's autistic in some way, the grimaces and the micro expressions that she exhibits are trained and um, submissive, meaning they are responses out of conditioning. Now, this child herself has been... Um, she has her own coach, uh, a specific uh, coach by the name of Luisa Marie Neubauer. Um, she's a German climate protection activist. Uh, she works um, as a youth ambassador of ONE, and ONE is an organization that lobbies and campaigns for climate change. Obviously, Bill Gates and George Soros fund that. So you'll notice that whenever you see this little girl, Greta, that girl, you know, uh, Louisa Marie Neubauer, let's say Neubauer, which is her last name, is right by her, flanking her at all times, watching her, uh, you know, consulting her and guiding her. This is the most ridiculous, I would think, thing that anyone would applaud. This girl is 16. First of all, she looks nothing like any 16-year-old. Uh, her capacity for speech is impeccable, but her social capabilities in regards to responding as a 16-year-old are those of a preteen, uh, which highly suggests uh, abuse. Uh, for example, Normally, 16-year-olds uh, in the United States and anywhere else in the world have um, their own interests, have um, their own personality. She seems very um, commanded. 
her detest and her micro expressions when she made her speech were so forced but also so full of resentment, not so much resentment. Oh, you people, it's all your fault. You know what? We should listen to her speech only for you guys to understand that the passion proclaimed uh, put behind her words is not really passion, but it's detest. And it's not for the words or what she's directing, but it's actually detest for those that have trained her to say the words. Uh, it's, it's a very different type and this is extremely, I feel sorry for this little girl. I really do feel sorry for her. Um, but it's also scary. Children are the scariest type of people when they have power. Uh, children, uh, still begin, still form their ideas of right and wrong up until the age of 25, until they find themselves. This is why it is, um, important to understand that there are nations across the world, uh, just like in the United Kingdom where they have, um, rulings that are called evil children. Um, I think I've spoken about this before, but, uh, I was undertaking, um, litigation course at, uh, the university, South Bank University in London. Um, and there was a case study, uh, that was pretty much, uh, for a moot session. And this case study was about children that had, and they were, you know, prepubescent children between the ages of six and eight that had taken an infant and dismembered it alive and then put it on the railroad tracks uh, to entertain themselves. And one would have to think uh, for children that have multiple siblings to do such an atrocious act. Okay. First of all, where's the mom, right? But to do such an atrocious act means that they are completely desensitized to life. And what people don't seem to understand is, is that the eyes of a children see things differently. They're very highly influenced. And depending on the age that they are exposed to certain things, that is where their morals come out. That's why I say all the time, how do we expect these Somali refugee migrants to come here and assimilate when they think it's okay to walk around swinging a machete and just slicing someone up who, you know, uh, refuses to give you sex or, you know, doesn't move out of the way when you're shopping. You know, it's really hard to teach them that that is wrong when they've been taught this is right. And that is the premise of what they call evil children. Uh, because mm-hmm. one thing that they may see, they have no hindrances and their ability to discern what's right and wrong is still sketchy. In the case of Greta Thunberg, um, uh, the evil child theory uh, persists. I'm not saying she is evil, but her morph, you know, her morphemisms in her face and her micro expressions show such anger and detest, regardless of someone might say it's from Asperger's, which just causes issues in regards to social cues and the way people respond to things. Mostly, um, it is a resentment that she shows, uh, to those that have trained her to say this, not to the people that she is addressing. It's so incredible to listen to her. Uh, I, I, you know, the detest, the how dare you, you've stolen my dreams. But, uh, take a listen to this. This, this was appalling. 
You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. My message is that we'll be watching you. <laughs> This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. She needs to go back to school on the other side of the ocean. Children belong in school to educate themselves with actual facts and history. Um, the I'll be watching you for me was chilling. It was a threat. And the threat is real and not so much uh, you know, oh, I'm scared of a child, but I'm scared of children that are conditioned to think like this. And all of us should, because none of them have their moral uh, foundations uh, stable enough. And if, like Greta, have people earwigging and um, handling them, it is very scary. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet, I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money. Okay, let me stop it right there. So it's our fault. How dare we go to them and look at them as hope? All of us that have fought wars, all of us that have created innovation, all of us that invented things, we did that all because we're disgusting and we don't care about the future. But then she says all we could think about is money. Let's stop right there. Climate change is all about you paying money to someone to fight it. How the money is fixed, no one talks about that. So she's talking about, oh, you can think about his money. Yeah, because you're asking us to give up billions and billions of dollars and no one's telling us what you're going to do with that billions and billions of dollars. What President Trump said, which was perfect, is we should be more conscious as human beings on our environmental footprint. Correct. So what do we do? We invest in renewable energies. We invest in recycling programs. We invest in innovation that will help us reduce our footprint, not carbon footprint, footprint in general, to allow for sustainability, to allow for nature to coexist with us as they would in the wild. This is how you do it correctly. Not by paying billions and billions of dollars to wherever Greta tells you to, because they know best, but they won't tell you what they're doing with it. So this is all about money. And fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. Actually, in the 1970s, we were told that, oh, gosh, I have that clip and I'm going to play it for you. They told us that we'd be using gas masks by 1995. Then they told us there was a hole in the ozone layer and we would die from that, too. Then they said the polar ice caps were going to melt and we were going to be underwater. Then they talked about climate change and El Nino effects, etc. And we were all going to die. Then they told us we have 12 years 
years. And this girl now set us limits as well on, you know, um, <laughs> how uh, long we're going to live. This is exactly what they are doing to us. They are constantly holding us hostage to new science that claims that all this is happening. It's pretty incredible, you guys. I find it shocking that anyone believes it. This is this hurts. It hurts to see people fall into that and say, yeah, I kind of agree. That's the way it is. Uh, you know, we're all going to die. The science is crystal clear. Listen to what she says. How dare you continue to look away and come here saying that you're doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight. You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency. But no matter how sad and angry I am, I do not want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil and that I refuse to believe. The popular idea of cutting our emissions in half in 10 years only gives us a 50% chance of staying below 1.5 degrees and the risk of setting off irreversible chain reactions beyond human control. 50% may be acceptable to you, but those numbers do not include tipping points, most feedback loops, additional warming hidden by toxic air pollution or the aspects of equity and climate justice. They also rely on my generation sucking hundreds of billions of tons of your CO2 out of the air with technologies that barely exist. So a 50% risk is simply not acceptable to us, we who have to live with the consequences. To have a 67% chance of staying below a 1.5 degrees of global temperature rise the best odds given by the IPCC, the world had 420 gigatons of CO2 left to emit back on January 1st, 2018. Today that figure is already down to less than 350 gigatons. How dare you pretend that this can be sold with just business as usual and some technical solutions? With today's emissions levels, that remaining CO2 budget will be entirely gone within less than eight and a half years. Oh, wow. We're all going to choke. I think that's the same thing they told us in the 70s, where we're going to have to have gas masks to go outside and how our children will be using gas masks to play and ride their bikes. This is the same exact thing. They're recycling the same exact information they gave us almost 50 years ago. And she says, how dare we, how dare she push climate hoax? How dare we as human beings believe that our impact is so strong that the planet itself won't help correct itself? It thinks. This is why it adjusts. It thinks in the sense of it responds to reactions for huh, 
basics of science. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. You do this to counter that. I do this, right? You stand, the earth pushes back up to you. That's the way it works. So how how can we even think that we are capable of doing this? I mean, the ozone is just proof of just how they utilize the circumstances of the world adjusting itself, right, the planet itself with volcanoes, which are the leading cause of depletion in ozone because of the chemicals released. And now they want us to think that only cow farts release, you know, special gas, not your farts, just cow farts, that will make holes in the ozone. This is how ridiculous it is. I think every living being here that metabolizes farts. So that means we should all just not have metabolic systems. I mean, it's really ridiculous what they're saying. Now she's saying in eight and a half years, we're not going to have any of that budget. So we'll just all choke. There will not be any solutions or plans presented in line with these figures here today because these numbers are too uncomfortable and you are still not mature enough to tell it like it is. You are failing us. But the young people are starting to understand your betrayal. The eyes of all future generations are upon you. And if you choose to fail us, I say we will never forgive you. Now that is terrifying, okay? She is like calling for like, you know, kid war against adults. And they applauded it. Of course. We will not let you get away with this. Right here, right now, is where we draw the line. The world is waking up. And change is coming, whether you like it or not. Yeah, that's word of advice she should take. The world is changing, and they need to fix this, whether they like it or not. Uh, Because we're not having it anymore. We're not allowing them to tell us how to operate. And we're not going to allow them to use children to tell us how to do this either. Now... On that note, what I wanted to then move forward on is the fact that the president actually sat in on um, the climate change speech and he was listening. Totally love the faces he was making. Uh, But I really uh, love the fact that he sat in because it's always good to see what your enemies are pushing. And this is a call to take money from people and put it to whatever causes they want. And that is huge. That is massive. Now, shifting gears, I wanted to start off with playing parts of Easter eggs that the president put forward uh, during the UN General Assembly speech. I have gone to the points that are most important. He spoke about Venezuela and Cuba, and on the heels of that, he said something very important. Take a listen. To sustain its own corrupt communist rule. Since I last spoke in this hall, the United States and our partners have built a historic coalition of 55 countries that recognize the legitimate government of Venezuela. To the Venezuelans trapped in this nightmare, please know that all of America is united behind you. The United States has vast quantities of humanitarian aid ready and waiting to be delivered. We're watching the Venezuela situation very closely. We await the day when democracy will be restored, when Venezuela will be free, 
and when liberty will prevail throughout this hemisphere. One of the most serious challenges our countries face is the specter of socialism. Here it's we go. the wrecker of nations and destroyer of societies. Events in Venezuela remind us all that socialism and communism are not about justice. They are not about equality. They are not about lifting up the poor. And they are certainly not about good of the nation. Socialism and communism are about one thing only, power for the ruling class. Thank you. Hallelujah. This is something that he said last time. We will never be a socialist country. He puts them all at the table. Remember, Greta comes from Sweden, which is highly socialist. Uh, they have a socialist type government, just like Norway. They're all pushing all these socialists tell you how if we redistribute wealth and everyone has the same wealth, then it's all good. And that everyone can come on equal footing and it'll be great for everyone. But the ones that are telling you this are the ones in the Lamborghinis, are the ones that have, you know, uh, they're dripping in diamonds and have private jets. You don't get a private jet because your money needs to be redistributed. And if you want to break that threshold where you're making enough money that even though they redistribute a grand portion of it, uh, you still have leftover cash. It's never going to happen unless you're born into that. So this is how we create ruling classes. Think about it. Let's pretend everyone had equal access. Competition, where is that? You're not allowed to compete with someone that has a better education and has more money because you can't. You want to open up a business? No. Socialism says it has to be equal. So if you have a little shop and you're making a little, you know, you took the risk to open up your own little small business and break out so you don't have to have that basic wage that everybody else has, you're still going to have the basic wage because they will be taking your profits to make sure you get that basic wage, that Equality, as they call. Yet the other people, the people that have huge firms, banks, they won't have to do that. That is how you create a ruling class. And here we go again, bringing it back full circle as to why the United States was founded in the first place. To escape that cycle of society. To escape that type of government that had religious prosecution, that had speech prosecution, that had socialism. Today I repeat a message for the world that I have delivered at home. America will never be a socialist country. In the last century, socialism and communism killed 100 million people. Sadly, as we see in Venezuela, the death toll continues in this country. These totalitarian ideologies combined with modern technology had the power to excise new and disturbing forms of suppression and domination. For this reason, the United States is taking steps to better screen foreign technology and investments and to protect our data and our security. We urge every nation present to do the same. Freedom and democracy must 
be constantly guarded and protected, both abroad and from within. We must always be skeptical of those who want conformity and control. Even in free nations, we see alarming signs and new challenges to liberty. A small number of social media platforms are acquiring immense power over what we can see and over what we are allowed to say. A permanent political class is openly disdainful, dismissive and defiant of the will of the people. A faceless bureaucracy operates in secret and weakens democratic rule. A faceless bureaucracy operates in secret. He is telling you exactly what is going on, even though he sounds really low energy. And I know why, because there are other things that he has to address and he does not want to be there, but has to, you know, and, and the left is having a party. Oh, teleprompter was too far. So he was squinting. Yeah. Let's remember all the other clowns like Bushes and Clinton, even Obama that stuttered the minute it went off. Our president would do a lot better without a teleprompter, but you know, He needs to stay on point because he wants to talk about something else. We know what he wants to talk about, and we'll talk about that when we listen to his press conference. Media and academic institutions push flat-out assaults on our histories. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. I'm your host, Tory. So now we're just going to continue um, a little bit more into his uh, speech at the General Assembly and um, talk about these Easter eggs that he's dropping. He's pretty much telling the world he's restating socialism has no place. We will not comply. We are not yielding to this under, you know, unnamed, uh, faceless bureaucracy that operates. Listen. Traditions and values. In the United States, my administration has made clear to social media companies that we will uphold the right of free speech. A free society cannot allow social media giants to silence the voices of the people and a free people must never, ever be enlisted in the cause of silencing, coercing, canceling, or blacklisting their own neighbors. As we defend American values, we affirm the right of all people to live in dignity. Did you hear that? So that's very important. So what he's putting out there is your uh, blacklisting of people. Remember, people can't travel to certain countries. People are refused access to products, consumer products, and even just basic speech. Public discourse now happens in the cyber ether. And uh, tomorrow's show will be dedicated to the Telecommunications Act of 1996 and the Communications Decency Act. So if you want to hear just what they did under the Clinton regime and how they have formulated as such. And we'll talk about a very special resignation that happened last week 
and you didn't hear about it. So I'm going to talk about it tomorrow in great detail. We'll recover this. But what he is putting out there is all these attempts to silence, to dox, to blacklist your neighbor, which falls into what? Red flag laws is not acceptable and not something he is willing to allow to happen under his watch. This is a very important statement. For this reason, my administration is working with other nations to stop criminalizing of homosexuality. And we stand in solidarity with LGBTQ people who live in countries that punish, jail, or execute individuals based upon sexual orientation. We are also championing the role of women in our societies. Nations that empower women are much wealthier, safer, and much more politically stable. It is therefore vital not only to a nation's prosperity, but also is vital to its national security to pursue women's economic development. Guided by these principles, my administration launched the Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiatives. The WGDP is the first ever government-wide approach to women's economic empowerment, working to ensure that women all over the planet have the legal right to own and inherit property, work in the same industries as men, travel freely, and access credit and institutions. Yesterday, I was also pleased to host leaders for a discussion about an ironclad American commitment protecting religious leaders and also protecting religious freedom. Why hasn't any other nation done this? Think about it. Why haven't they tried to protect religious freedom? Why haven't they tried to protect freedom of speech and expression? These are key components, and this is to, across all the band, but you know, of um, demographics. We're talking from women, men, people that have a different sexuality, which shouldn't even be brought up in business. I mean, they're making it a business. It shouldn't even be. I don't care if you're gay. Your work and your product will speak for itself. Nobody cares what color or sexual orientation you have. But for some reason, it has become a stigma, a part of the conversation. And what President Trump has done is um, raise that up. Raise that up to say, this shouldn't be done. You can't criminalize people for what they want to do. There is no effect. Religious freedom is also very, very important. This fundamental right is under growing threat around the world. Hard to believe, but 80% of the world's population lives in countries where religious liberty is in significant danger or even completely outlawed. Americans will never fire or tire in our effort to defend and promote freedom of worship and religion. We want and support religious liberty for all. Americans will also never tire of defending innocent life. 
We are aware that many United Nations projects have attempted to assert a global right to taxpayer-funded abortion on demand right up until the moment of delivery. Global bureaucrats have absolutely no business attacking the sovereignty of nations that wish to protect innocent life. Key here. So we have the United Nations pushing that taxpayer money fund abortions. This is horrific. And he is right to say that nobody can impose to any nation that wishes to protect life those types of stipulations for anything. The fact that the United Nations is pushing something like this should make you irk in itself. Like many nations here today, we in America believe that every child, born and unborn, is a sacred gift from God. There is no circumstance under which the United States will allow international entries to trample on the rights of our citizens, including the right to self-defense. That is why this year I announced that we will never ratify the U.N. Arms Trade Treaty, which would threaten the liberties of law-abiding American citizens. The United States will always uphold our constitutional right to keep and bear arms. We will always uphold our Second Amendment. The core rights and values America defends today were inscribed in America's founding documents. Our nation's founders understood that there will always be those who believe they are entitled to wield power and control over others. Tyranny advances under many names and many theories, but it always comes down to the desire for domination. It protects not the interests of many, but the privilege of few. There we go. So the right to bear arms, like he said, was written into our Constitution for what reason? To protect our right to defend ourselves against those that seek to suppress. This is why we have the right to bear arms again, because it was predicted as many years have gone by and they know that those that wish to, uh, you know, stymie, uh, the ability for someone to protect themselves are doing it for their interests, for the interest of the few, for the interest that wish to rule you and nothing else. That is the point that they make. You shouldn't have arms. We'll protect you. Don't worry about it. Oh, someone comes in. Don't worry. The only way that a government can take over their people is by making sure that their people can't fight back. That is basically it. And um, I'm going to play a 30 second clip of his specific words yesterday in regards to the religious prosecution. Now, we're going to um, listen to these few seconds because it's important that you listen to the words within the words. Take a listen. The United States is founded on the principle that our rights do not come from government. They come from God. This immortal truth is proclaimed in our Declaration of Independence and enshrined in the First Amendment to our Constitution's Bill of Rights, 
our founders understood that no right is more fundamental to a peaceful, prosperous, and virtuous society than the right to follow one's religious convictions. That is very important. That is very important. And he continues to say, As we speak, Jews, Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, Sikhs, Yazidis, and many other people of faith are being jailed, sanctioned, tortured, and even murdered, often at the hands of their own government, simply for expressing their deeply held religious beliefs. So hard to believe. Today, with one clear voice, the United States of America calls upon the nations of the world to end religious persecution. Now, who can argue with that? See, religious persecution uh, is a fundamental, uh, well, religious belief is a fundamental right of your First Amendment, your right to free speech, right to expression, right to free press, right? That you vocalize or you are able to think. Remember, the First Amendment, even though it talks about free speech, what is it about? Free thought. And your thoughts are encompassed with your beliefs, with your faith. This is really important. He drove that home because that is the foundation of the first amendment your religion how the color of your hair the clothes you wear if you wear a cross or you know a jewish you know the star of david whatever it's your call a hijab your call it is your way to express you and so many people will be like religion hey this is first amendment this is a First Amendment right, the right to be able to choose your own religion, the right to be able to express it and to pray and to talk about it and to show it through your clothing and, and, and the mannerisms and the food you make and the way you paint your house, whatever flag you want to fly, you know, anything. This is important that this is understood. He is reinforcing the fundamental right of free thought. Free thought. And the only way you can put it forward is by using the most polarized thought, which is religion, which is highly personal, which is highly culturally linked thought. This is the defense of free thought. This is what our president was doing. Free thought. So it's really important that we remember that this U.S., during this assembly, the president of the United States promoted for us to sanction free thought. Now, C-SPAN had a question. Well, they put it out. President Trump retweeted it. He said, I think I'll get a Nobel Prize for a lot of things. I think we need to create new prizes for President Trump because he has changed the world. He has, you know, called them all to the carpet stated about this faceless, nameless, unknown bureaucracy that runs the world, pointed out the few that are benefiting from this and pointed out the disgusting plan of socialism and how they're utilizing it. Take a listen to what he said uh, during uh, this uh, Q&A session when he sat down with Pakistani, um, uh, you know, uh, head uh, Imran Khan. Take a listen. Yeah. Very likely and definitely you will be deserving a Nobel Prize. I'm bad. Please Nobel, Nobel Prize. Prize How about that? Mr. President. Mr. President. Mr. President. I think I'm going to get a Nobel Prize for a lot of things if they gave it out fairly, which they don't. Mr. President. Mr. President. Yes. If they gave one to Obama, 
immediately upon his ascent to the presidency, and he had no idea why he got it. And you know what? That was the only thing I agreed with him on. Very likely. He's right. They're just handing them out. It's not like they're doing it uh, because of something that they accomplished. I mean, I say it all the time, and people could say whatever they want. The only reason Barack Hussein Obama got a Pulitzer Prize, uh, a Pulitzer, um, a Nobel Prize, was because he was black. That's basically it. They just wanted to escalate it. Now they're saying Greta Thunberg's going to get one. It's all BS. It's all paid for. It's all to uh, make them more legit and their message more legit. This is why I say we need a new prize. Nobel Prize is worthless now. Anybody and their mother can get it as long as they align with whatever the few want to be pushing. Take a listen to what he said about, um, uh, well, you know what? No, we'll do that later. Uh, the next thing that I wanted to uh, play for you guys was um, his presser. He had a press conference uh, after the U.N. meetings uh, in New York. I want you to take a listen to what he said. Not willing for years to talk trade, and now they're willing to talk trade. And I'm sure we'll make a very good deal. Just concluded, as you know, two days ago, signed a deal with South Korea, trade deal, tremendous deal with South Korea. It means a lot of business for our farmers. We're opening up for farmers. We're opening up for a lot of different groups. We're going to be able to sell much more than double the number of automobiles that we were allowed under a deal that was totally defective that was there before. And so we're very happy with that. That deal is actually concluded. We're very well along the way with Mexico. The relationship is very good. And with Canada, we'll see what happens. Uh, They're charging us 300 percent tariffs on dairy products. We can't have that. We can't have that. Uh, With China, as you know, we put out an announcement today. They would like to see me lose an election because they've never been challenged like this. But I want to open up China to our farmers and to our industrialists and our companies. And China is not open, but we're open to them. They charge us 25, 35, 55 percent for things, and we charge them nothing in terms of coming into the country. Cars, they're 25 percent, and we're 2 percent and 2.5 percent, and don't even collect it, but we collect it now. So we're doing very well in our situation with China on trade. I have a great relationship with the president of China, President Xi, but it's got to be a two-way street. He's reinforcing what he's doing with China and uh, the abuses that they have done. And like he said, the, there were tariffs supposedly of two and a half, two, two and a half percent that we weren't even collecting. So let me fast forward to this point. Yeah, go ahead. But, but, Mr. President, if I could follow up, you, you have daughters. Can you understand why... A victim of sexual assault would not report it at the time. Don't you understand? Wait, I need to put the question in. Hold on. Let me just get that for you guys. Here you go. And big on picking judges. When I got there, I said, how is this possible? I have 145, including Court of Appeals, judges. And they just didn't do it. You know why? They got tired. They got complacent. Something happened. I have 145 judges. Everybody wants to be a federal judge, not just a Supreme Court judge. I'm talking about Court of Appeals. I'm talking about District Court. I don't think they're going to want to so much. I'll be calling people, and we'll have people calling people that do this. And people are going to be scared because we could say it about you. 
35 years ago, you met, and you might know, you might not know what's going on. What is going on? Why did they wait so long? Why did Senator Feinstein wait till the hearings were over and make this case? Why didn't she bring it right at the beginning when you ask about, as an example, the FBI? Why didn't they bring this right at the beginning, during the hearing? You would have had all the time in the world for the FBI. It would have been fine. Now, the FBI, as you know, did investigate this time, as they have five or six other times. And they did a very thorough investigation. But this is a big con job. And I would love to be in the room with the Democrats. Close the door. You guys are all away outside waiting. And Schumer and his buddies are all in there laughing how they fooled you all. Let's just stop them. A big, fat con. Yeah, but, go but ahead. But, Mr. President, if I could follow up. You, you have daughters. Can you understand why a victim of sexual assault would not report it at the time? Don't you understand? By the way, I only say this. 36 years, no charge, no nothing. But, but that, Everybody, that, that happens often. I mean, people are going to have to make a decision. 36 years, there's no charge. All of a sudden, the hearings are over and the rumors start coming out. And then you have uh, this other con artist, Abinadi, come out with another beauty today. I only say that you have to look at the facts. The senators are very capable people. They're very good people. I know many of them. They're friends of mine. These are very talented, very good people. And they're going to vote. They're going to have to believe what they believe. I can- okay, so why did I play this for you? This is his conference after the U.N. meetings last year. Did you hear what he talked about? He talked about Kavanaugh. Now, the reason that I bring this up is because Feinstein and this Kavanaugh situation is going to be coming to the forefront. Here's the hint. President Trump was very, very distracted because with this release of information, (laughs) it's going to be a storm. It is going to be a huge storm. Um, There is going to be so much coming out based on the release of those transcripts. Transcripts that are going to be coming from the information that was collated and put together after President Trump won the election. And the people that were hired to help verify, and I'm using air quotes, the dossier, were also involved in formulating that letter with Diane Feinstein and pushing it afterwards. Because what they needed to do was ensure that they had the stronghold. Now, how did they do this? I take it back to the point where there was a huge investigation into the CIA. The CIA was parsed and picked apart. And what they did was they, under the guise of investigating torture within the CIA. They got access to the highest intelligence documents, to the most covert assets across the globe that the CIA may have had. Not only the CIAs, but foreign such agents that were so covert, they could be standing next to you and you have no idea who they are. Now, this Senate pushed by Obama, hugged and loved long-term investigation into the CIA, 
of course, gave them a report on the ways they would torture people. But it also gave them a list of who's who, what they've done, and now they have insurance. When you have insurance on an agent that has worked within the shadows of most governments around the world for 10 or 20 years, you own them. You own them because you will hold them accountable for other crimes they did under your guise and say, well, it was still a crime and you did it. You entered those premises and you collected that financial information. You entered that government and you did this and we will hold you responsible. Suddenly you're going to be seeing agents that helped avert wars and terrorist plots going to jail for the methods they used to do so. This is what they had. A list of people that would get the job done to avoid being exposed and unmasked. This investigation and the list they had was part of how they created this whole Kavanaugh scenario. And the thing with Kavanaugh was that it happened way too quick because they didn't get the company off the ground that conducted this investigation that hired these covert assets to penetrate. And what was it that the lady said? They were pressuring her to say something right. Those people couldn't get it done from April up until August of 2017. It was really, really hard. Uh, 2018, sorry. Um, it was really hard for them. And this is how it happens, that these letters are coming in, these, and, and sat on it. Where did the letter come from? I can tell you it came from Diane Feinstein's right-hand person. And we all know this. And it has been demonstrated and It was all derived from that list of names that they got under the guise of investigating torture within our intelligence community. They own them across the planet. They own them within this nation. And because with their unmasking comes their families unmasking for those that do have families. Insurance is a very strong motivator. And that kind of insurance is not the kind of insurance you want on a global or any public platform for that matter. And President Trump really doesn't care. He's going to pop it right open. And when it does all come out, it's going to be a bloodbath for the Democrats. After the break, we'll get into more on his UN conference and more so let's talk Brexit because this just got real interesting real news welcome back everyone to the Tory Says Show I'm your host Tory so in this hour of the Tory Sess Show, we're going to talk a little bit about the Ukraine, very little, but I want to delve into um, Brexit because it's really important. But before we do that, <laughs> I think we should uh, play the clip where 
President Trump called Cuomo Fredo at the U.N. Uh, presser. Take a listen. It was hilarious. I love him. Are you, are you just happy with the way Rudy Giuliani has been handling uh, these things? I think it was excellent. I watched him the other night. I haven't watched that show in a long time. I don't watch CNN because it's fake news. But I watched uh, Rudy take apart Fredo. Uh, Fredo's performance was incompetent. Rudy took him apart. <laughs> the press doesn't give him credit because they take little tiny snippets where uh, wherever Rudy was a little bit... Uh, if, if he mispronounces a word, they'll show that. They won't show the whole. Rudy Giuliani took Fredo to the cleaners. First time I've watched CNN in a long time, too. I hate to watch it because it's so. It's hilarious, right? I can't believe he said that. I love him just for saying it. Um, so uh, here we have a snippet that I want to play, which is between President Trump and Boris Johnson of the United Kingdom, which, by the way, today had an atrocious defeat in court where the Supreme Court in England ruled that it was like not lawful for him to suspend parliament, etc. We'll get into that a little bit later because I just want to touch upon the Ukraine not too much in depth, um, because I want to do a whole show dedicated to just that, not only on uh, what happened before, because I kind of went through that yesterday on yesterday's show in regards to Biden and the timing of a son. Remember, 20, I'll outline the timeline so you guys get it. 2014, Barack Hussein Obama appoints Joe Biden as the point guy for the Ukraine. It was in 2014 that Hunter Biden got the director position with Burisma. And Burisma was already under investigation uh, by a non-attorney general. You know, he had opened up an investigation into them uh, in 2011 and had it shut down in 2013. Now, in 2014, one of the guys that was leading that investigation actually became attorney general sorry in 2015 and this is where it heated up so in 2016 uh Ob- biden actually pushed to get that prosecutor fired because he reopened up the investigation into Parisma and obviously uh, had started asking questions in late 2015 about joe biden's son so in march of 2016 he threatened march 2016 he threatened hey you're not going to get any u.s loans that are backed by any loans backed by us to give them to you if you don't fire him. Now they did fire him, and guess who they hired? The former uh, prosecu- uh, a former minister of the interior that went to jail for corruption was then beca- then became prosecutor general after the Ukraine changed their laws saying that the prosecutor general doesn't have to have a law degree to be prosecutor general. Like they literally put their own guy there to be the head attorney for the nation without a law degree. Are you getting this? We're going to get into that a lot more deeper later. Uh, for now, I just want to play this clip between Boris and President Trump. There's also another clip that I'm going to play right after this because Boris is uh, constantly purported as the British version of President Trump. Now, their body language shows that President Trump does not want to be wherever he is right now. He doesn't want to be uh, at the UN. He has somewhere else to be. He's got other stuff on his mind that he's pushing forward. I can see that in all his body language from his his, um, you know, speech where he was reading it off and just to read it and be there because he had to when he has other pressing things to deal with. We're talking very pressing things. Uh, some of those difficult issues where 
uh, I think we, we share a common uh, perspective. And, uh, we want to dial things down, but also make sure that uh, people in the Gulf don't get the wrong idea right. about what they can they can get away with. That, that's a complicated issue. Now, the, some of your critics are saying that you should resign because you misled the Queen with yeah. regard to shutting Parliament down. How do you respond to that? Well, I, as I said earlier on, thank you very much. Well, as I said earlier on, uh, let's be absolutely clear. Uh, we respect the judiciary in our country. We respect the, uh, the court. Uh, I, I disagree profoundly uh, with what they had to say. I think it was entirely right to uh, go ahead with a plan for a Queen's speech. This is a, a, a this is the longest period we haven't had a Queen's speech for uh, for 400 years. We've got a dynamic uh, domestic agenda we need to be getting on with. Uh, more police on the streets, investment in our national health service, uh, improving our education. We need to get on uh, with that. And frankly, I think we need to get on with Brexit. That's the overwhelming view of the British people. Uh, whether they voted to leave or, or remain, they want to get this thing done by October the 31st. And uh, that's what we're going to do. Mr. President. That was a very nasty question from a great American reporter. Was that, no, was that, was that an American reporter? That's an American reporter. That was awesome. Okay, first of all, I just want to say, even though our president is very deep in thought, I'm telling you, uh, and obviously we can't report on this yet, but there is there are two things that are going right now in, in uh, going on in the shadows right now that are huge. One is like super tinfoil hat level, like beyond that, like master level tinfoil hat. And the other one's kind of like, you know, it's there, but you just don't know it's there. And he's very focused on those two things right now. And he is very distracted. And I commend him for his composure because I would have been like, yo, peace out. We really got to deal with these situations. But he's there. And yet he still stood there, um, has great energy between Boris and him. I love the way Boris Johnson is comfortable with President Trump. I love the way they can talk. There's no BS or anything. And I love the way the president stood up for him and said that was a really mean question. That was awesome. That was awesome. I thought it, I, I, I think, a good one. But I think he was asking a question, to be fair, that a lot of British reporters would have asked. <laughs> <laughs> now, we, now that we have that out of the way, I'll tell you, I know him well. He's not going anywhere. Don't worry about him. Okay, Mr. go ahead. Any other questions? Any advice for Prime Minister as how he should deal with the judges? No, I think he's dealing very well. Everything I see uh, is what, look, I watch it very closely. He's a friend of mine. I tend to watch friends closer than enemies, but the enemies you have to watch in a different way. I think he's doing very well. It's a complicated subject, but uh, they took a vote, and the vote was, I was there. I happened to be there the day of that you vote. The vote. I yeah. made a prediction even. I even made a prediction. Right. It was a correct prediction. And, you know, that was a long time ago, and it takes a man like this to get it done. And they have to get it done. Otherwise, it would be a terrible thing to do it any other way. I don't see another vote. I don't see anything happening. I think he's going to get it done. Do you think Mr. President, what was your reaction when you heard these uh, UK Supreme Court decision? What was your reaction? Uh, I had no reaction. I, I just asked Boris, and, you know, to him it's another day in the office. He's a professional. It's just another day in the office. Yeah, well, it's, it's tomorrow's another day in Parliament. That's what that's what. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we had, we had uh, Boris, the first uh, couple of months, we had been, I think we were 0 for 7 with the Supreme Court. And since then, we won the wall, we won asylum, we won some of the biggest ones. We've had a great streak going. Uh, but uh, we, we started off, we were 0 for 7, and then, as you will 
report. In fact, the first time we won, you were like shocked that we won. And since then, we've almost uh, run the table. We've won a lot of decisions. So uh, I'm sure that's going to happen to you. Well, well, I, well we're not counting our chickens, and we're, we're full of respect, as I say, for the, the justices of our <laughs> Supreme Court. But uh, we're going we're gonna to push on. With, we're going to respect what the court had to say, but we're going to get on and and deliver Brexit. That's the, I think that's what the British people want. In other words, he's been very nice to the court, please. Okay. He has total respect for the court. Yeah, Jeff. Mr. President, on a separate subject, can you explain why aid to Ukraine was stopped? Because I think that other countries should be paying also. Why is the United States the only one paying to Ukraine? And I've been talking about this for a long time, not only with respect to Ukraine, but a lot of other countries. But frankly, why isn't Germany, I just met with the Chancellor, why isn't Germany, why isn't France, why aren't these other countries paying payment? Why are we paying all the time? And nobody's given, I believe, more to Ukraine. You know, President Obama used to send pillows and sheets. I said anti-tank weapons and a lot of things to Ukraine. Uh, we think that it's very important. And both, by the way, I don't know if you know it or not, that payment was made. But I wanted to get other countries. Other countries should also pay because, frankly, it affects them more. I mean, that's a barrier. That's a wall between Russia and the U.K. He's right. And they don't pay. And why are they not paying? Why is it always the United States that pay, that's paying? And I made that loud and clear. I told that to Mick Mulvaney. I told it to a lot of people. Where's Mick? Wherever he is. Uh, I told it to a lot of different people. I told it to Mike. I told it to two Mikes. I told it to Steve. I keep asking the same. I said it to Wilbur Ross. I keep asking the same question. Why is it that the United States is always paying these foreign countries and other foreign countries that, frankly, are much much more affected? They're not. So I said, hold it up. Let's get other people to pay. And then everybody called me. Oh, please, can we pay? And I said, and there was never any quid pro quo. The letter was beautiful. It was a perfect letter. Uh, it was unlike Biden, who, by the way, what he said was a horror. Okay, so we're stopping paying the Ukraine, okay, um, until everybody else. Now, that was a great excuse. The reason we stop the funding is to monitor what funding, what other funding they get. And that's very important for us because how do we figure out where all this money is bleeding into, uh, where all this money is coming into, uh, the Ukraine from? That is what we need to monitor. And in order to do that, we need to take out our money so that way it doesn't obfuscate or be shuffled around. And ask how his son made millions of dollars from Ukraine, made millions of dollars from China even though he had no expertise whatsoever, okay? So what he did was a real problem. With us, uh, there was no pressure applied, no nothing. Okay, folks, thank you very much. Yep, he ended that right quick. Now listen, bottom line is that President Trump made it clear that he's going to stop the payments, uh, and people think it's retaliation or whatnot. The bottom line is, you know... uh, it's being done in order for us to also further monitor other funds that are coming in. I want you to listen to Ken Starr now. There's plenty more evidence. There are documents. There are tapes. There the vice president There's a completely money laundered transaction. Uh, the way he got paid $3 million of, of that money he was cashing in on, the money, the money went from Ukraine 
to Latvia, to Cyprus, to the U.S. There is Rudy Giuliani making his case against Joe Biden and his son as Democrats make a move of their own. Three House committees demanding the transcript of that call with the new Ukraine leader from July. Ken Starr, former independent counsel, Fox News contributor. How you doing, sir? And welcome back here. Tell us about the dangers of doing this or not. Would you put out the transcript or not, sir? Well, good morning, Bill. Uh, not at this time. I don't think there should be a rush. Uh, there are dangers. Uh, the precedent of a president, any president, uh, making public transcripts of confidential conversations by their very nature. A conversation with a foreign leader is uh, whatever the subject is. It, it's sensitive. It goes to the relationship, if not to substance. Now, that having been said, there's a competing principle, and we're seeing that at work, and that's accountability and checks and balances. So I think that the uh, Senate is suggesting an appropriate middle course. Let's have the Senate Intelligence uh, Committee conduct its investigation. It knows how to handle confidential information, uh, you know, without the world necessarily needing to know. But we're seeing the dynamic because of all of the background of impeachment, which is unfortunate, but it's a reality. Okay, I, I didn't hear you say no entirely. But perhaps no, no eventually, or, or even maybe a yes eventually. Ron Johnson said this, it's a very dangerous precedent, and I yeah. think it's going to really harm any president, whether it's this one or a future president's ability to walk the world leaders candidly. Would you do a partial release to issue some sort of clarification of the issue? You just needed it. My answer is no full release at this time. But you calibrate. You do step by step. I think uh, Senator Johnson is spot on in saying this is a dangerous precedent. Doesn't mean you don't eventually do it. But yeah, you try then to negotiate. Let's have a negotiated solution. Let's sit in a room with the Senate Intelligence Committee. It may be that the Senate Intelligence Committee members themselves review the full transcript. So there are different ways of calibrating this and negotiating this. But don't rush to publish. We live, I know, in the age of transparency. But that has to be balanced against an enduring presidential interest in carrying on the foreign policy of the United States in a responsible way. What have you thought about this whistleblower saying that he or she did not have firsthand knowledge of the conversation? Either they were informed of it, either they saw a recording or heard a recording or saw a transcript. What do you make of this claim? Well, I tell you, I'm very distressed when an individual takes it on himself or herself to say the weight of the world is on me. There's so many officials who are privy to a presidential phone call. So we'll see. Let's find out all the facts. But the president of the United States, again, should be assured the presumption of confidentiality of what he or she is saying in a phone call is so vitally important to carry on the foreign policy of the United States. So right now, I would say let's don't give any Purple Hearts or awards to the whistleblower. We're talking about the presidency not just the occupant of the uh, Oval Office at this time. Okay, so this is very important, guys, because this would be a a landmark push to uh, remove confidence of confidentiality between presidents and leaders of nations speaking with the President of the United States. If the Democrats can succeed... To have President Trump release his transcript, that would be a big problem.
Because even though, and, and you'll hear the president say, it's completely innocent. I don't mind sharing it. The thing is, do you want to share it? Because if you share this, then they can pressure the next president or the next one to share the next. And then we will not have that trust within nations. Because nations, other nations, have never shared transcripts of calls. That is the question. Take a listen to President Trump addressing that specific question. On the, on the aid question, aid from a moment ago, did you tell the Ukrainian leader that they would have the aid only if they investigated Joe Biden and his family? No, I didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't do you it. Didn't elaborate as well. But Joe Biden said it about his son. Joe Biden was very dishonest what he did. What he did is he said if they don't do uh, this or that and get rid of a certain prosecutor, Joe Biden said it. But because you're a faker, you in particular, you're a fake news group of people, you don't want to report that. I didn't do it. And you can, I hope you're going to be able to see a call because I didn't do it. You're, everybody's looking for that call. And keep going the way you're doing because when you see the call, you're going to be very surprised. No, but Joe Biden, let me, let me just be quiet. Joe Biden is the one that did a very, very bad thing when he said that. And I think it was $1.2 billion he wasn't going to give unless they got rid of a prosecutor who was investigating his son and the company that his son works for. Then you also say, how much money did his son make from the Ukraine? And then ask another question. How much money did his son make from China based on energy? He knows nothing about energy. So why did he leave China? Why did he leave Ukraine with all this money? So Joe Biden was very uh, dishonest. Now, when you see the call, if you see it, I hope you see it, frankly, uh, you will find out that I did not do that at all. And you'll be very disappointed when you see it. It's really a disgrace. It really is a situation where it, it just shows the press you've had such a bad week between Justice Kavanaugh and this and other things. It's showing how dishonest so many members of the press are, not all of you, but so many members of the press are so totally dishonest. But this is a case, I hope you get to see the call because your question you will see, I did not ask for, uh, did, I did not make a statement that you have to do this or I'm not going to give you aid. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. With that being said, what I want is, I want, you know, we're giving a lot of money away to Ukraine and other places. You want to see a country that's going to be not corrupt. The president is a good man. He got elected on the fact that he was going to get rid of corruption in Ukraine. That's, I think, the primary reason he got elected. So he gets elected on the basis of ending corruption in Ukraine. Well, I think that's good, and that's what I want to see. But when Biden does a thing like that, then there's still corruption, and that's not good. You, sir, you can release, you can authorize release the transcript. Will you do that, I can sir? do it very easily, but I'd rather not do it from the standpoint of uh, all of the other conversations I have. I may do it because it was a very innocent call on both his part and my. We had a very nice call. It was really a congratulatory call because he had just won. It was just confirmed. And he's the new president. And I think he's going to do an excellent job. But remember, he got elected on the basis of uh, the biggest part was corruption in his campaign. And so he wants the same thing, and he's looking for the same thing as I am. He did a very good job. It was a very nice call. I hope you get to see it, and I hope you get to see it soon. 
he held his ground really well on that, you know, kind of making that statement. Listen, I, I can I can share it because it was very innocent. But on the other hand, it would set precedent with other phone calls that I've had with other people. And he pointed out how wrong they were. I'm going to remind you that this isn't the first time someone uses their seat to make their son rich. Remember, Bush 41 knew that Saddam Hussein was going to be invading Kuwait. Um, and that is when his son, Bush 43, sold his interest in an energy company in Bahrain, making bank right before the company's stock tanked. So this is business as usual for these corrupt idiots. And again, I stress to you that the prosecutor that was fired and replaced, he was replaced by a prosecutor that, one, does not have a law degree. So first, they ratified the Ukrainian law to allow a non-lawyer to be the country's top lawyer. And then they put him in there. And remember, this is a guy that went to jail for corruption. He actually went to jail for corruption. And the United States, along with the United Nations and the European judges, they got him out after a pardon was requested by the outgoing president, which was the fourth president of the Ukraine at the time. So this is like super corruption on steroids. And I'm Putting that together in an article called Joe Biden is a liar. Here's why. And I point that out. Like, how do you get a prosecutor, a head prosecutor or attorney general to be attorney general of your country with no law degree? And one that Joe Biden approves of, of course. Take a listen to this clip. I kind of did the same thing yesterday on air again about the Ukraine. What happened? Mr. Vice President, how many times have you ever spoken to your son about his overseas business dealings? I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings. I went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev. Why is he on the phone with a foreign leader trying to intimidate a foreign leader? And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. You should be asking him the question. I said, no, nah, I said, I'm not going to, we're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have no authority. You're not the president. The president said, I said, call him. <laughs> this appears to be an overwhelming abuse of power. I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars. I'm trying to intimidate a foreign leader. I look, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> got fired. And everybody's looked at it, said there's nothing there. Ask the right question. Mr. Vice President, how many times have you ever... Huh, that's funny, because that's exactly what he did to the foreign government, right? Intimidate them. That is key. So um, I wanted to play a, um exclusive interview that uh, I think it was NBC had with Boris Johnson. Uh, they cut out a lot, but I, th- this is a very telling interview. It's just two minutes. And I want you to hear how NBC went to town with him and Lester Holt tried to pressure Boris on saying something negative about President Trump. And he didn't fall into the trap. Prime Minister Boris Johnson facing pressures at home over a looming Brexit deadline is with other world leaders here in New York tonight for the start of the U.N. General Assembly. I sat down with him this afternoon for an exclusive U.S. network interview where I began by asking him if he agreed with the U.S. assessment that Iran was behind the recent attack on Saudi oil facilities. 
We are virtually certain that it was from Iran. So that presents the world with a very difficult uh, scenario, a very difficult position. How do we respond? And that's if my so question what? to you then. Yeah. What, what, is, what is the UK's position well, on military force? Uh, you know, it's, it's look, I, I, I'll be honest with you, it's not something that I think will necessarily help the situation. I think, actually, there was a logic in having some kind of deal with the Iranians that stopped them getting a nuclear weapon in exchange for some participation in the, the wider economy. Would we now, be here today had the U.S. not withdrawn from that agreement? That's a, that's a difficult question because the reality is, it, as President Trump rightly said, it was a bad deal. It wasn't a great deal. Iran was, was and, and is behaving disruptively in the region. And I think there's one guy who can do a better deal. Uh, one guy who can under, understands how to get a difficult partner uh, like Iran over the, uh, over the line. And th- that is the President of the United States. Did you hear that? He said there's one person that could get a better deal. There's one person that can, you know, meet Iran across the table, and that's President Trump. Ah, NBC didn't like that one. And I brought up those comparisons of Johnson to President Trump even by the president himself. They're saying Britain Trump. They call him Britain Trump, and people are saying that's a good thing. What do you think about the comparisons between you and, and Donald Trump? Well, look, you know, I, I think that uh, they are um, peculiar. Uh, they're, they're not... Uh, get the, we'll get the response after the break. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. I'm your host, Tory. So right before the break, we heard how Lester Halt tried to uh, strong arm uh, the United Kingdom's Prime Minister Boris Johnson to speak badly about the president. So then he brought up, uh, you know, he didn't like the fact that he praised President Trump for the one that could solve this Iranian problem. So what he did was he said, well, people are calling you the British version of Trump. What do you have to say? you and, and Donald Trump? Well, look, you know, I, I think that uh, they are um, peculiar. Uh, they're, they're not, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, um, I'm a See, he didn't want to say, hey, that's an honor to be compared to President Trump because then that'll trigger a lot of people. And he didn't want to say that he doesn't like President Trump or nope, I'm nothing like him kind of thing because he likes Donald Trump. He just praised him about being the guy that can bring it home. So he sat there for like almost a full, you know, 30 seconds. Uh, 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 take a listen. I'm a British conservative. Uh, I'm, uh, I come from a, you know, a, a tradition that believes in free markets, free trade, all sorts of things. Where I think we're, we're most, most different is when it comes to Twitter. I'm not a master of that medium. Is that the only the big way, difference the way, between the, way, the two? The, well, I'm just giving you one difference, okay? I'm going to leave it to your imagination to think many other differences. But um, there are plenty of differences. We had limited time with the Prime Minister, but I also asked about Brexit. He said he is committed to achieving the U.K.'s breakup with the EU at the end of October with or without a deal, despite suffering several key defeats in Parliament that may prevent him from doing that. 
<laughs> he had limited time. Yeah, he ended it right then and there because he's like, listen, I don't need you to put me in a corner and try to make me look like I'm going to badmouth Donald Trump when he is not a bad president. He's actually quite a great leader. So thank you, Boris Johnson. We appreciate you for that. Now, let's talk about Brexit. I mean, Brexit is a really big problem uh, because their Supreme Court ruling just made Brexit harder. Uh, take a listen to what Boris Johnson had to say about that. Um, I've, obviously, his message was that we're not going to be deterred. It's going to happen. But, you know, he got the news while he's here. Um, and we should listen to that. But before we do, I want you to listen to what they're saying in England about this. Take a listen to what they have to say about a second referendum first. Second referendum, which means your first vote doesn't count. And see, uh, like I said, you know, I have family visiting from England and I was talking to my brother-in-law who said, we all know our vote doesn't matter, so we really don't care. We're not even going to vote because no matter what we vote, they're going to do what they want anyway. And here is just proof of it. Take a listen. ...to give the public the final say on the deal that is put to the UK that's been agreed by the EU. So what you have today is a chance for members of the party, different parts of it, to express their view. And there'll be some differences of opinion on that. But the fundamental thing that all the options have in common is Labour is completely opposed to a no-deal Brexit, which would be very, very difficult for all parts of the country, my brief obviously, especially for financial services, and fundamentally to give the public the final say in a new referendum. But crucially between a position that's been agreed with the European Union, a viable leave deal as we describe it, and a remain position. I think that is the only way this country will move on from this initial stage of Brexit, because it's a process, not an event. But it gives us a chance of getting that. And quite frankly, where the UK is right now, that seems the only likely way to move on. Is that referendum only possible after an election, both in terms of practicalities and party policy, do you think? I don't think so. Uh, much depends on whether the current Prime Minister gets a deal at the European Council. What we hear is it's, that's very unlikely, but clearly there is a possibility. That would depend on how that deal is treated by Parliament and what the stages are after that. But we're definitely getting very close either to a change of government through what we call our fixed-term parliaments process where a new government can be formed if the current one fails. Failing that, it will be a general election or a referendum. So he's the UK shadow economic secretary. So what he's saying is that we should have another vote just as a final, like, are you sure kind of referendum before we move forward. This is just how adamant they are to stay within the socialist conglomerate. This is just how hellbent they are to do so. And Europe is strong arming them because they have so much to lose with the crown. The deals that Europe has, you know, the trade deals with the United Kingdom expand to that of of the other entities of the crown, which indirectly affect India, indirectly affect Australia and Canada and any, any other crown-controlled uh, uh, nations. So this is going to hurt them more. And, you know, President Trump said, I'm willing to make a deal. Let's make a deal. Because the crown has interests around the planet and that is what is hurting the eu they should not have taken advantage so much of the british people where they would come to that point to say 
no more. They should not have taken over their ability to produce, to manufacture, to fish, and to work. Uh, the British people are proud people, regardless if they're subjects and they're not really free people. They have that sense of we're supposed to be free because we're British, even though they know they're not. Um, they are proud of what they do have as subjects. And Europe took that away from them. And so they wouldn't be here if they weren't so um, aggressive in pushing their agenda to people like the Brits, because that never goes over well. We've seen it throughout history. I mean, the French war between the French and the Brits, it was more so about, yeah, who do you think you are doing this rather than, hey, you're doing this. Uh, the Brits are very um, firm on their, um, I would say, identity. Take a listen to what Elsie says, which is really important here. How we get there depends partly on how we respond to what happens at the European Council at the end of October, but we're pretty close to something, I think. Do you have sympathy for people watching this conference and the Labour Party over the last few months who say, I don't understand what the Labour Party wants when it comes to Brexit? No, I don't. I don't think that's fair. I mean, broadly, I'll describe it like this. You have the Conservative government that's willing to do Brexit at all costs, probably with no deal, which would be ruinous. You have the Liberal Democrat position on the other extreme, which is, forget the whole thing, maybe we'll just move on. I think that's unrealistic as well. And you have our position, which is, let's give the public a choice between remaining in the European Union and a viable deal that's been agreed. So there's no confusion or counterclaim about what that would really mean. The terms are very clear. They get the final say, and we implement what they decide. Didn't they already have the final say, though, with the vote? Do you see what I'm saying? They're like, yeah, yeah, we can have a viable deal, but we just want to make sure that you're sure that that was your vote. Let's just redo your vote to make sure, sure. Now let's listen to what Boris Johnson has to say when he's lost this Supreme Court battle uh, in regards to the parliament shutdown, because the judges actually ruled it as unlawful. Take a listen to what he has to say. A very exciting time in our country. We're getting on with uh, delivering... Brexit. And I just want to say a word or two about that, because there's been a court case uh, in our country uh, this morning, which I, I think one or two of you may, of you may have picked up on the, <laughs> on the media. And it would, be, it would be remiss and wrong of me not to address that directly. And, uh, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm, uh, we've got our friends from the, from the UK media here as well. And, and so I just want to say to everybody uh, watching back home, uh, for the avoidance of doubt, I have the highest... Uh, respect, of, of course, for our judiciary and for the independence of our courts. But I must say I strongly disagree uh, with this judgment. And we in the UK will not be deterred from getting on and delivering on the will of the people to come out of the EU on October the 31st, because that is what we were mandated to do. And uh, we will simultaneously refuse to be deterred from delivering on what I think you would all expect, an exciting, dynamic, uh, domestic agenda intended to make our country ever more attractive to live in and to invest in. So we'll be pushing on uh, with infrastructure investment, with 20,000 police, with investing in our NHS. And to do that, we will need a Queen's speech to set out uh, what we are going to do. And I think, frankly, that is what the people of my country, of the UK, want to see. They want to see us getting on with a strong domestic agenda, and believe you me, they want to see Brexit uh, delivered by October the 31st. Anyway, that's, the, that's what you need to know about what's happened in the court uh, today. Uh, but I can tell you that uh, 
under any circumstances, court judgments, adver- adverse or otherwise, my heart lifts when I come to, to, to New York. Because there's something amazing about the city. It's got an incredible amount of energy. Snap, it's got these sort of wonderful, I, I love the blue sky. Against the, against, the, against the skyscrapers, the, 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 the weird, strange Martian uh, water towers on the tops of the, uh, uh, of the buildings. And it's the, some, the things about New York you never find anywhere else. But there are many ways in which uh, New York and London are not just similar, but actually united. It's, it, it's not just both cities obviously share a language, kind of. Uh, we, 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 have, we have a basic idea of freedom, don't we? We have a basic idea, idea of freedom. And the, the idea is very simple, common to our democracies and our traditions, that if you obey the law and you do no harm to others, then you can come and you can live your life as you please in these great cities without being judged or, or censured. And I think it's the excitement of that freedom that brings people of talent to New York as it brings people to London. And you say so you get this cyclotron Effect and the flash of inspiration that leads to innovation, that leads to prosperity and growth. And very often it will be a synthesis between American and British ideas, uh, like this thing outside, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, like the, uh, we invented, for instance, the, the underground train. Uh, you invented the safety brake, or Otis invented the safety brake elevator, and take them together, you've got the recipe for a a modern metropolis. And you can see that same fusion today across uh, our cities in every sphere from tech to the arts to to newspapers. And and you know the the things, actually, they're they're going up. I think there are now 1.2 million uh, U.S. people uh, employed by U.K. companies, a million uh, or more in the the U.K. trade now worth 200 billion a year, if I got that right? Going up the the whole time. Uh, Colossal investment. But to cut to the chase, we now want to do so much more because our country is going up a gear. On October the 31st, as I say, uh, we intend to be more global, more outward-looking, more committed to the rest of the world than ever before. And we're going to take advantage of all the freedoms that Brexit can give, whether that's... Okay, so what is he saying? We're going to be looking all over the world. We're going to, here's what he wants. He wants the United Kingdom to come on to the global stage again as the United Kingdom, as that great empire that's been around since, you know, zero AD, right? Um, to come forward from the Britans, from the days of Wessex and Mercia to what we have today, which is a kingdom, uh, that includes England, Scotland and Northern Ireland and Wales. I don't know if Northern Ireland will be on the table after October 31st. We'll have to see if they are willing to sacrifice Ireland, which will be a big issue because we'll have the IRA up in arms and that'll cause disruption. So the bottom line is he wants his nation to be on this global stage. He wants them to look outwards and say, yo, hey, Ghana, you make coffee. Let's do a deal. You give me coffee, I'll give you potatoes. That's the way it goes. They want to be innovators. They want to shine and bask in that light of innovation, not under the shadow of a blue flag with many stars to just be one of many. Right. That is the motto of uh, many of these uh, globalist type flags, which is of many now one one of many. And, you know, ironically, just so you guys know, for those of you in the United States, you know, every flag of every state is very particular to that state. 
Well, North Dakota's flag motto is actually that out of many is now one, which is super weird for the state of North Dakota. But hey, you never know because tomorrow's show will show you that back in the 90s, they already foresaw because they already knew where the cyber community would be today and how important the acts that they were passing were, even though in 1996, the Internet and the cyber community were in its in infant stages without any innovation. And we all realize that innovation has exponentially grown across the planet because of our access to massive amounts of information at our fingertips. Um, on that note, I want you to listen to the rest of what Boris has to say, only because it's very important. Brexit is key here, because Brexit will set off a chain reaction of destroying one of the biggest socialist organizations on the planet, the European Economic Community that was created right after on the heels of World War II. I kid you not, that is when they created it. You know, seemed to be a perpetuation of Hitler's notion, but without villainizing a specific race or religious group. Instead, they villainized two people that were of conservative thought. And you know, that feeds into the idea how Bernie Sanders' right-hand policymaker said that their taxes will be targeted to most individuals that are conservative and libertarian. Wait, stop the press. What? You mean because I'm conservative, I'm going to be taxed more than someone else? Or is it because you know that conservatives are the ones that make more money, hence they will be funding all these crazy socialist programs to make us poor and drive us into poverty, which will then in turn drive us into silence? That is impressive. The fact that they're coming out and telling you these things. Mike Cernovich tweeted out, a senior advisor to Bernie Sanders de facto admits their plan would only tax people seen as conservative or libertarian. The list of people that would pay no taxes has no mention of Warren Buffet, Soros, Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, or any other prominent leftists. So um, under Bernie's plan, this is how much more billionaires would owe this year. The Walton family would owe 14.8, Bezos 8.9, Charles Koch 3.2, Sheldon Adelson 2.6, and Rupert Murdoch 1.28. These are all billions in the billions. But, you know, the list that Bernie... Sanders proposes with this wealth tax doesn't include, indeed, Zuckerberg, Dorsey, or any other leftist billionaire. Uh, on that note, take a listen to what Boris has to say, because it's in these few minutes that he tells you how it's all being set down. That's new tax allowances for investment or, or speeding up public procurement contracts or creating new free ports, enterprise zones devising better regulation for sectors in which the UK leads the world, whether that's uh, bioscience or, or financial service or, or, or whatever, with more competitive tax rates and the best skilled workforce in the hemisphere. And so I say to everybody who's done me the honour of coming uh, this morning to this breakfast, we will roll out uh, the red carpet uh, for our American friends. And we are increasing the number of visas for scientists, uh, we're ensuring that your brilliant students can stay on for two years so as to get real value 
uh, from their studies and so that our economy in the UK benefits from their expertise. We are even, I'm delighted to see John Holland K here, we're even ensuring that US visitors are able to use the electronic e-passport system at Heathrow. Is that right? Fantastic. Well, I, I, that, ought to get, that ought to get a mild, mild ripple of, uh, of applause. I, I, I'm sure that's, I, I use it the whole time. And yes, and yes, we want to do, we want to do the much vaunted free trade. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, because there will be things where we, you know, we, we do not want to, our NHS to be on the uh, on the table. Uh, but uh, and, and there the will be difficulties. But I'm I, I'm very glad that uh, President Trump has set up these special relationship economic working group because it is absolutely absurd that there should be tariffs in the UK on Californian wine, quite high, heavy tariffs, or British shoppers should pay over the odds for Florida orange juice. But it is also absurd and indefensible that the population of America, to the best of my knowledge, has gone for decades without eating a morsel of British lamb or beef, let alone haggis. You know, are you listening to this? This is exactly what he's saying. I want to eat British lamb, not about the beef, but about the lamb. You know them Welsh. They do some really good lamb and sheep. And <laughs> there's a story about the Welsh on that. But let's just leave it at that. Um, same kind of thing you would see with the Hajis down in. Um, uh, never mind. I'm going to just stop right there. Lamb. Perfect. Welsh lamb. Yes. Mint jelly. Yes. Hobnobs. Yes. Proper tea. Yes. Vegemite. Marmamite. Marmite. Marmite. Which is a yeast spread, like literally yeast. He's right. Why can't we have that? Why do we have to pay extra? You know, one thing that I really like? Ribena. It is like a, a black currant uh, concentrated thing that you put in water. It's like my most favorite drink ever. And I don't drink juices or anything like that. You know, I'm not like a juice drinky person. Uh, I like water and I like coffee. And so that... um that is one of my favorites, but for a bottle that cost me like two pounds in England, I got to pay something like $10 here to get it. So he's right. And I have discovered that anyone wanting to sell socks to the United States, I've got to be careful with this, but anyway, I think they at least face a tariff. Is that right? They do. There's some, this, this statistic is contested in some way. Liz. We, we, they, uh, face they face a tariff uh, of, of 19%. I was told that there are some fibers that have to be taken to a laboratory and, and, and set far too twice. twice. But, I'm not, but, 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 but the, the hosiery industry of Britain is, dis, disputes this. They think they can overcome uh, this barrier. But there are others. Uh, there is a... Uh, only certain ports in the United States are licensed for the import of British cauliflowers. Can, can you believe that? Uh, and the U.S. military are banned from buying British tape measures as though there were some kind of general prejudice still against British rulers of all kinds. So I ask you, is, is, is this, my friends, is this really necessary? Guys, do you see that he's saying exactly what President Trump is saying? Uh, you know, Americans aren't getting this stuff. I mean, who makes these rules up? Who says that you can't buy a tape measure, you know, to measure the length of your floor from Britain? Like, why is there a ban on that? Why are only certain ports allowed to bring their goods in? These are questions that you have to ask yourself. Who makes these rules up? Think about it.
Who makes these rules up about what is charged, how the trade is done, et cetera? Now, we do understand, like, the sock rule with the threads. For some reason, we want them to be not flammable. So weird, because um, I'm pretty sure that I drop a cigarette on my sock, I get a hole in it, so whatever. But <laughs> I've never done that, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it would. Uh, so it's pretty ridiculous. They're laughing, and it's like, why are you laughing? This is reality. It's disgusting. And you're laughing about it because you think it's funny, but it's not, because this is a reality. It, let us break, let us work together to break down these barriers that have been devised by bureaucrats, because all the evidence of the last two centuries, this is the free trade, is the best and fastest way to increase the prosperity of both our peoples. This year, our country, the United Kingdom, takes a giant step out into the world in keeping with our traditions but also with our new ambitions to build on our friendships and our relationships with our friends in Europe, in the US and in Canada. We do it with confidence to make Britain the best place in the world to start, to build and to run a business. The place you will want to be and the place you will want your business to be. And that's why I say to everyone here, come and join us. Thank you very much for having me this morning. He is great. I really like his attitude and the way he kind of uh, placade, you know, the whole, hey, this is the problems with trade. I mean, this is what free trade is about, to be able to sell your cauliflower and ship it to a port in Virginia. It doesn't have to go through Pennsylvania and then ship by truck. Why? It makes no sense. Uh, you should be able to import our goods and, and eat, you know, Marmite, you know, spreadable yeast, if you're into that. I, ugh or hobnobs or Ribena or Biscoff cookies or, you know, proper British tea, you know, you should be able to have access to these and, and their stuff, their, their, their sweets are nice too. Um, their version of M&M Smarties are actually tastier than M&M's for me. Cadbury's chocolates, you know, uh, imported straight from England. Why not? Because we don't get it. We're not doing it. We're not getting lamb from them. Instead, we have to wait for New Zealand because, I don't know, there's not a lot of lamb producers here within the U.S. Why aren't we cultivating lambs? Lamb is delicious meat. So is goat. And I know they use it for yoga and people have pet lambs, whatever. But it's still sustenance. Why are we only focused on beef, pork, and chicken? Why are we importing uh, meat from other nations? Why can't we raise it here? Why can't we uh, get it from our partners in England to help them? This is what England needs to be doing, is creating these trade deals for the products that they have exclusivity, you would say, or the majority in production, per se. Uh, Guinness beer, why can't we have that uh, not be as expensive? Why are we... Re- making it here when it tastes better when it comes from Ireland, I'm just saying. Uh, these are all questions that people should be asking themselves. Why are they so hell-bent on dictating what we can and can't have if free trade is what they claim their trade agreements are? That is the question people should be asking themselves. And this is why President Trump is hated so much because he is pushing for exactly that, free trade. That nations will not be reliant on bureaucrats, a faceless bureaucrat, faceless bureaucrats dictating what you can and can't 
buy and what you can and can't sell. Uh, so tomorrow we're going to be having some super deep dives. Um, I do know that SoundCloud is having a problem. I don't know if I'm being shadow banned. That's really crazy, right? Um, and so I'm looking into that for all of you. Just my most recent shows will probably show. I'll see you all tomorrow, same time, same place, only on Red State Talk Radio. God bless.